Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you for being here, both in the Zoom and in the live stream and on the recording podcast or YouTube side. We are thrilled to have you here to learn with us today um, with Rabbi Aviva Richman, uh, who is a Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar and has been on the faculty since 2010, a graduate of Oberlin College. She studied in the Pardes Kolel and the Drisha Scholars Circle and was ordained by Rabbi Danny Landis. She completed a doctorate in Talmud at NYU. Interests include Talmud, Halakha, Midrash, and gender, and also a healthy dose of Nigunim. Um, Rabbi Richmond, we're thrilled to have you here and to learn with you today. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. It's just like wonderful to be part of the world of Torah and what we can do on a random Monday. Um, I am thrilled to be able to teach as part of Uri general world of learning and thinking about the intersection between Torah and social justice work more broadly. Um, I am mostly here to share a few Mishnayot, some teachings from early on in the rabbinic canon. And I hope that what we'll get to do today is um, both get to appreciate some of these texts in their own right, but also get to see how um, some of our own questions around how we approach resources and unequal distribution of resources. These are not new questions. There's obviously always new structures and relationships and systems that um, help us think about these questions in new ways, but we can, we can really delve into a rich tradition around these questions. And that's not just a matter of um, values, kind of beautiful values being expressed. There are a lot of beautiful values in our, in our Torah tradition. Um, a lot of what the rabbis offer us from early on in the, in the times of the Mishnah is um, sort of God is in the details mindset. So having an opportunity to approach these texts from the times of the Mishnah that are um, really trying to ask, what does this look like in real life? What does it look like to address the question of who has resources, who doesn't? Um, how do we bridge gaps between sort of where the, where the abundance is and where the need is? How do we bridge those gaps in ways that will, that will work? Um, and I think another another general framing comment that I that I want to give before we get into the text themselves is how how can our aspirations and ideals um, actually play out in good real ways on the ground? And sometimes we have these beautiful ideas, and um, it doesn't pan out the way we hope that it will. And so one of the things we're going to look at by looking at these these texts and these sort of specific examples is um, A, kind of noticing that head on, that we can have ideals and we should have ideals and big aspirations, but that's not always going to play out in the way that we hope it will. And that when it seems like things aren't working so well, who gets to speak up about that? And what kinds of tweaks might we need to make in the system and, and to sort of see those moments when the ideals are not playing out in the way that we hope they will, not as a kind of, oh, need to abort, must be that ideal doesn't work. And those are moments to really lean into and get excited about doing the work together. Um, okay, so I'm gonna launch into the learning if that's, if that's all right. And um, let's see, can I do a screen share here? Yes. Brilliant. Okay, so um, here's where we are. Unequal resources, sharing property. Um, we're going to start with a Mishnah that is, oh, what did this just do? Here we go. You never know what, what you could click on next here. Okay, we're going to start with a Mishnah actually coming out of the, the Shemitah cycle um, that I think is, is helpful for um, both for dipping into kind of the most radical vision that Torah can offer us around um, resource distribution and imagining equality, 
Um, and we'll see that this is really going to lay bare a fundamental tension that remains something that we struggle with to this moment, which is radical equality versus radical equity. Um, what are we what are we going for? Radical equality where where everyone is sort of has the same stance towards resources or radical equity where people actually can have the same outcome um, but might actually need different things to achieve that outcome. So this is a Mishnah from Masachat Shvi'it, which is all about Shemitah, the seventh year, where we know in the Torah, um, any landowner was meant to, um, to stop working their land, harvesting their land, and anything that the land produced was available for everybody to, to take and partake of. And this is both framed as a rest for the land and also a, disrupt, a disruption of people's relationship to property so that a landowner didn't have a more, um, a more kind of unique relationship to the land any more so than, than anybody else who could, who could partake of those fruits. Okay, so here's our, our Mishnah. Um, I'll explain one concept it's gonna bring in as, as we read this first line. Misha hayulo perot shvi'it v'higia sh'ad habi'ur mechalek mazon shalosh su'udot l'kol echad. So somebody who has Shemitah fruit, so this is fruit that they didn't work to cultivate because it's forbidden to do that work, but when it is the Shemitah year, even though you don't do the work um, that you would usually do to cultivate your, your produce, any fruit that does grow in and of itself, you can collect, you can harvest, um, but only for your own consumption, not to sort of collect all of the fruit. So somebody who had Shemitah fruit, and then the time for Bi'ur arrives. Bi'ur is our language here. And this is a Mishnaic concept that we see around Shemitah, which is the idea that at a certain time, any produce that is no longer readily found in the fields, but you happen to have some still in your house. So let's say um, apples were in season. And you collected apples that you thought you might need for a meal, that your household might need for a meal. And now it's come to a time of year where apples are no longer growing on the trees. So not everybody has equal access to apples on the trees. If you still have some in your own home, um, you actually have to get rid of them. You cannot have stored up produce in your home during Shemitah once that produce is no longer available. And there's a little bit of allowance here. You can have enough for three meals for everyone. So if you have a household of six people, you could keep enough apples for everybody in your home to have three meals worth of apples. Um, and that's the idea that you can have access to, to more immediate food. But beyond that, we are actually disrupting some kind of picture where some people have stockpiles of produce that other people cannot access. Okay, so when the time for Bior comes, you can keep enough of that food item for three meals for, for the next day's worth of meals, essentially, um, but no more. Okay, beyond, beyond that, it is, it is not fair. It's considered inappropriate, it's sort of unequal for certain people to have a pile of food in their homes that is no longer available for everybody to partake of. Okay, there's some medieval debate here about um, do you actually have to destroy that fruit once it's time for beer comes, which seems like kind of bizarre and strange to imagine destroying um, this bountiful produce just because other people don't have access to it. Um, though that position that says you should destroy it shows you how strongly we believe in this idea of, of shared um, sort of shared and equal access that nobody should have should have more. And others think, no, you don't destroy the food. That would be totally counterproductive. Instead, what you do is you relinquish ownership. And then you would just make it available to anybody who wants it. It's called healthcare, proclaim it healthcare, proclaim it ownerless. And then anybody can partake of the, the extra food you happen to have. Okay, so that's our concept of Bior. Again, the, the idea here is we cannot imagine a situation during the Shemitah year where some people would have sort of stockpiled resources that others cannot readily access in the fields. And then we get this debate that really um, hones in 
on this conflict between radical equality versus radical equity. Um, so here, we're actually going to see the radical equity position first in the position of Rabbi Yehuda. He says, Rabbi Yehuda says, those who are poor, so people who do not generally have access to food um, from their own resources, people who are poor can eat after the biur, after this time where those, those items are no longer available out in the field, they can still continue to eat then, but not those who are wealthy. People who are wealthy cannot. Now, what are we talking about here? This is a little bit confusing. I'll try to spell it out. Um, these items are not available. They're not growing. It's not like they're in the fields growing. The whole point of this is that the season for this particular fruit is over. Okay, so there's no more apple trees. There's no more apple trees with apples on them anymore. So what are we talking about? It seems like based on our commentaries on this Mishnah, the idea is let's say that some people did relinquish ownership over our apples or whatever produce after this time of Bior. We have ownerless apples. Maybe there's some that dropped on the ground. So there's no longer any on the trees. There's some on the ground that have no owner or there's somebody who had to relinquish the pile in their house. So they've maybe put out on their doorstep, no apples take for free because um, they had to relinquish ownership. So that's what we're talking about. Fruit that is lingering even after the season is over. And um, who is allowed to have access to those fruits? Rabbi Yehuda says that there's actually unequal access at this point. People who are poor can continue to eat from these um, ownerless items, but those who are wealthy need to refrain because they know that they have access to, to their needs otherwise. Okay, so here's this um, kind of maintaining a distinction in terms of identity or class so as to allow for um, a more equal outcome. And Rabbi Yosei responds, Rabbi Yossi says, no, 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 you're missing the whole point. We can't have different rules for people who are poor, people who are rich. Um, whoever you are, you can still eat these items after Bior, after the time where they're no longer available in the field. So if you imagine that doorstep that has a pile of free apples after this time period where there's no longer apples available on the trees, Rabbi Yose says, everybody should be able to eat from those fruits. You shouldn't have to think, oh, am I poor? Am I rich? And um, it should be the same rule for everybody. And it seems like part of Rabbi Yose's idea is that the, the concept of Shemitah, um, radical equality, radical equity, right? He wants us to picture the year of Shemitah where actually everybody is the same. Um, there's no such thing as a status of rich or poor because there's no landowners during Shemitah. Right? The whole kind of ethos of the Shemitah year is that we want to imagine a world where everybody has an equal relationship to the land and its resources. And it seems like what we're seeing here is even though we know that's not really true, you can't just, you can't just um, artificially decide in a given year that everybody can sort of drop their prior identities and whatever structure um, their life has taken and say, okay, now everybody's equal poof. Rabbi Yosef thinks that that's what we're sort of aiming for. That's what Shemitah is supposed to ingrain in us, that there's maybe no such thing as rich or poor and different rules, um, rules for each. Um, and so that's, that's his picture of, of Shemitah. Well, Rabbi Yehuda, I think, would respond and say, well, that's all beautiful in theory, but at the end of the day, people who have no other resources um, who are not going to be able to go back to working their land the next year actually need greater access during Shemitah um, than those who are wealthy. Okay, I'm going to pause here in my screen share for a second. I know there are some people who are live in the room just to see if there is any question or comment on this radical equality versus radical equity picture of 
Shemitah and this, um, this debate. I can kind of see both of their points actually though. The reason why I can see both of their points is because I think, okay, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the points of Shemitah is that God is the owner of all anyway. So it depends on like, I mean, I know which one, I, which one of these two men I agree with. However, though, if you're coming from it, from the perspective of if God's the owner of everything anyway, I can kind of see where they're both coming from. Okay, great. And um, I don't know if you want to spell that out a little bit more. Would you say that Rebbe Yosei's position, the one where like, there's no such thing as rich or poor, everybody's the same does that lead to more of a sense of god is the owner of everything conceivably yes okay i'm not saying that i agree with it though but conceivably if you actually call out rich the concepts of rich and poor as being kind of ridiculous anyway and saying that really honestly this is an illusion it's a trick then i can see that however though i don't think that that's um how the world is you know this the world doesn't actually turn out that way. We'd love it if it did. I would love it if it did, but it doesn't. And so that's why I kind of think of it as if you are rich, then if you can admit that you're not actually rich, I mean, I kind of see where, you know, Yosei is coming from. But on the other hand, though, well, we are living in a world in which some people are regarded as rich and there are all sorts of privileges associated with that. And it is what it is. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. Right. And in some ways, it's almost like you could understand Rabbi Yehuda as saying, okay, we know that there's this vision that everybody right. should be able to just see themselves as being kind of equal to each other. But the only way to get there is that if people who are wealthy mm -hmm. hold back, right? And, and, in some, and in some ways, it's like, okay, well, maybe these, um, you know, if, if we get too caught up in the in the theory in an abstract ideal then um then we might lose track of kind of the necessary steps that need to be taken that require working in the moment and especially if that's about knowing knowing what your mm -hmm. what your privilege access might be and being able to hold back mm -hmm. and that's that's Rabbi Huda's position there that's why i would if i had to like go like picking sides in the, like, if I had to choose who was going to win the debate, I'd go with Rafi Yehuda, but that's just me. So okay. I mean, I know a lot of fun today when we have these arguments, there are a lot of people who argue Rabbi Yosei's side too. And those are interesting political discussions. Yes. Okay. So you can see, I mean, one of, one of the things that I always think about when I spend hours and hours and hours working in these, um, you know, sources in the Torah that are not necessarily totally applicable in most of our lives nowadays. Certainly the way that some people are, are kind of jumping in and trying to reclaim Shemitah even outside of the land of, of Israel nowadays, um, it can be inspiring, but it's not like we're gonna put this law into effect in our, own, um, in our own lives across North America nowadays. But I do think that what's amazing about this, this sort of gift of learning Torah is um, in a lot of ways, these kinds of things are more about culture than about law in any case, right? We certainly need very good policies, but at the end of the day, a lot of um, what actually results in sort of an outcome of, of social change is more about culture than law anyway. And so this, this debate I think is very helpful for giving some specific language for this equity equality debate. One thing that's unique about it is um, this isn't talking about always. It's talking about once every seven years, right? And in that way, I, I think there's maybe more of, there's sort of more um, weight and power to Rabbi Yosei's position that I otherwise might see as being totally unrealistic if his point is like, well, yes, the idea of Shemitah is that you don't lose track of your vision. And for the rest of the six years of the cycle, you're living in the here and now, and we have to work within whatever structures exist to try to get to our ideal. But for once, right, just once every seven years with this kind of periodicity of, can we just try to live the vision? Um, and then we'll go back to implementing it in our, 
in our kind of less than ideal structures. I, I see the, the kind of drive and power to maybe reach for that. And even so, Rabbi Huda seems to be telling us it's, it's a little bit dangerous. Um, okay, we're gonna move on to, to the next piece here, but I, I hope that's a good kind of opening frame for how our, our Mishnah can, um, can offer us some language for this kind of major, major debate, both about vision versus a more practical approach and the equality versus equity. Um, okay, the next piece we're gonna look at is, um, is tied to the laws of Peya, which are about leaving corners of the field that when the landowner is harvesting, they always have to leave corners of the field for people who do not own land to be able to come and harvest themselves. Um, and it's very interesting that there's, there's multiple ways in which the Torah um, has rules and laws about landowners leaving room for others who don't have land to get access to that food. And this is one that actually allows and requires people who don't have land to do the act of harvesting themselves, right? It's not just getting a handout of a meal. It's actually very interesting in the, the Mishnah that takes up all these laws of peya and leaving the corners of the field. Um, most of that most of that Mishnah, when the rabbis come to this all this material, is about fields. But then the very last chapter, um, which we assume is maybe speaking to a little bit more of an urbanized culture in um, in early the lives of the rabbis in, in early Palestine, there, um, it it's about giving out food to people, not a, not just stuck on the fields as the way that happens. So it's much more about communities providing meals for people in need. So it does take that leap. But in the Torah itself, the laws of Peya um, are creating an opportunity for people without land to actually do harvesting themselves. Um, and that feels like an important piece. Both It both makes it easier for the landowner, right? They don't have to process this food and, and give it out. Um, but it's also maybe empowering um, for people who don't own the land to to know that like essentially those corners of the fields are their fields and they can jump in and do that harvesting work and, and have a little bit more ownership in getting that food there's also a lot of stuff in the mishnah about fights that emerge between people so it, it's it's not that simple if you have more people than um corners of fields available but it's interesting when um, the Mishnah discusses what happens when it actually might be difficult to do that work of harvesting. So I'm going to jump down here to, um, to Mishnah Peya. And, and again, sort of where are we in the world of, of rabbinic sources? This is from the, the order of Mishnah that deals with Zra'im, all sorts of laws related to agricultural um, agricultural issues. And besides Peya, which is taken from the corners of the fields, there is also the allowance for, and um, the requirement for landowners to leave over a sheaves that they may have forgotten in the parts of the field that they did reap, and also to leave over any sheaves that have um, that have fallen right when they've sort of brought in the harvest those also go to people without land okay so here we go technical this is the the meeting point of the vision and the technical the corners of the fields it's given from a crop while it is still connected with the soil okay so unlike other um parts of all these laws about how a landowner shares of their resources um, with people who may not have land, where you can wait and give the gifts after you've completed the harvest, Peya has to happen with items that are still connected to the, to the ground, right? which I think is very important. Right? And it means from that moment of doing the harvesting, from the very first moment of harvesting, by design, you have to make sure that there are some of the resources that are left for those who do not have land. It can't just be an afterthought, right? It can't be you do the whole harvest. It's as though everything belongs to you. 
And then afterwards, um, you share some of it. It really has to be part of the design structure from the beginning, right? And a lot of this, I think, again, language of the Mishnah, we're not putting these laws into effect in our own life and world in North America. Um, but right, this idea of it has to be there from the design, you know, by design from moment one, as soon as you're doing the work of reaping your own um, income, there has to be something built in that makes an allowance for people who do not have that same, the same resources as you do. Okay, but this is the part I want to focus on. Bidalit uvidekel bal habayit morido mechalek la'aniyim. For the case of hanging vine branches and date palms, the owner brings down the fruit and distributes it among the poor. Okay, so even though we have, you might say, a vision that, right, it has to be from moment one, you're starting to harvest your field, leave over parts that you don't harvest, right? Get the message from right off the bat that some of this is not yours. Um, or we have the vision here that's, you have to leave it there so people who don't have land can do the act of harvesting their own food. And that's something that is empowering to have some kind of ownership over. And it's not just being handed um, or getting a handout, essentially. Right? That whole vision is maybe beautiful and important, but the Mishnah is going to imagine the case where that can backfire. If you have hanging vine branches or date palms, which are very tall, the owner brings down the fruit and distributes it among the, the poor. They're not going to do the harvesting themselves. Now, why is that? I'm going to jump down to a commentary on this Mishnah, medieval commentary, Rabbi Vajam Bartanura. It says, why is it that for the date palms and the hanging branches, the owner does essentially do the harvesting and distributes it? So he quotes the Pasuk, right, the verse in the Torah where we derive this mitzvah of peya, it says, ta'azov otam, you shall leave them, you shall leave the corners of your field for the stranger. And he's going to do a close reading of this. Otam she'ein bahem sakana ata'ozev lifnehem. Those parts of the harvest where there's no danger, there's no danger when you try to harvest them, that you can just leave for others. <coughs> Excuse me. But you can't just leave the produce when there is danger in ascending to get them. Instead, for those things, the owner is responsible to bring down the fruit from the tree and distribute to those who do not, who do not have land. Okay, so this is very specific certain kinds of produce um, you can't have this kind of hands-off approach um, even if it's maybe coming from some sort of ideal right that people can harvest for themselves and um, sometimes that ideal will go wrong you have to sort of be thoughtful about this if there are if there are fruits here if there is produce that actually is going to be dangerous to get Right? Maybe you don't have the right equipment. If you don't own land, you don't have the right equipment to, um, to harvest these items. Then you can't just ta'azovotam. You can't just leave that fruit there. Say like, I did what I had to do. I let go of my ownership over these items. I am ready for anybody who wants to, to come and get these. But I've done my part. My part was not to harvest this myself. Check. Checking the box of my responsibility? No, says the Mishnah, that is not good enough. You have to think through how this apparent act of generosity will actually play out. It might be that what it does is actually endangers the life of the person who is very much in need of that item and resource and knows that it's now available to them um, if trying to gain access to it will just make their work um, extremely difficult or might even be life-threatening, then you, landowner, didn't do your part. Uh, you have not fulfilled your responsibilities. You are responsible to harvest it, to distribute it so that, um, right, you as someone who is not a landowner can gain access to that without endangering 
without endangering your life. Um, so that I feel is, is an extremely important um, note and speaks a lot to right, what happens to our sort of intentions, right? When people have intentions to, um, to try to create greater access, but haven't actually thought about how access works in detail, um, it could actually make things worse. Not only might it not make things better because people won't be able to access the good, it could be that in trying to gain access to those resources that are now apparently available, um, a person could end up endangering their life and come in harm's way. Okay, I'll say more about that in a minute, but you can see how this, how this plays out. You can sort of imagine this. All right, one way to think about this is there's sort of a tension here between the ease of giving and the ease of access to that item, right? It's easiest from the landowner's perspective to just not harvest some of the stuff, it's now available. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's easy for, um, for people who don't have land to access it. So you see now here that there could, there could be kind of a fight that emerges around this. We're gonna, we're gonna read on and see what conflict might emerge in this ease of giving versus ease of access. Um, so, so this is an interesting piece here in our Mishnah. Rabbi Shimon says, the same applies to smooth nut trees, chalike egozim, which are apparently a little bit hard to climb. Um, but the majority position thinks, no, it's really restricted to these other items that can be very dangerous to reach. Now, even if 99 of the poor say to the owner to distribute it, and one person says to leave it in the field, this latter person is listened to since they spoke in accordance with the halacha. So here you can get a sense of, um, there's all these people who don't have land who are coming to a field, right? They see stuff that's remaining in the field. Um, and this right now is not about the case of our date palms and our hanging vine branches where the fruit could be dangerous to access. This is just in general. Let's say, right, you have the law, you have the policy, but now you have the sort of voice of people trying to access it who say, we actually want you to just give it to us. We don't want to have to harvest it. Um, if you even have one person saying, uh, no, just leave it in the field, the landowner can give it all to that one person. They can listen to that one person, leave it in the field, because that person is speaking in accordance with the halakha. And what it seems like is happening here is a little bit of a protection around the ease of giving. So even if there's a lot of people who want it to be easier to access this item, the landowner is allowed to do what is easier in general and, um, and not harvest it, just leave it in the field. But we now have our exception to this. When it comes to our hanging vine branches and our date palms, this is not the case. Even if 99 of the people who don't own land have come to this field or orchard with the date palms or vine branches, even if 99 of them are saying, just leave it, don't worry, we'll get it. We know it's a little bit dangerous, but we feel confident we can, we can climb these high branches and get the foods. And there's only one person, one of the poor people who's there who says, distribute it, does not want to risk, not, does not want to take the risk to try to access these items that are so high up. <coughs> the landowner has to listen to this one person who's saying, no, I don't want to take that risk. And, and the landowner needs to harvest these items and give them out instead of requiring the instead of requiring the, the people who are here to, to access them themselves, because this person spoke in accordance with halacha that requires the landowner to distribute things when it is hard to access, right? This I think is a very important Mishnah, right? Sometimes when people are desperate for resources um, and willing to take risks, um, right here it's 99 of the people who sort of have this like, what if the market forces allow the landowner to get away with um, with 
you know, making this available in a way that's risky, right? you might say, okay, well, this is sort of transactional. And if, and if 99% of people are, are fine with it, then that's just the way, that's how business is going to get done here. And then there's really a strong pushback to that, that requires the landowner to follow the halakha and make these available in a way that is, that is not, um, that is not dangerous, that does not carry the risk. Now, in this Mishnah, this sort of depends on there being one person who is saying, distribute it. One person who's saying, no, I can't take that risk or I don't want to take that risk. You can imagine how hard it might be to speak up when you have 99 people around you saying like, no, it's okay, we'll, we'll deal with this. Um, you know, this is sort of like, what kinds of conditions might somebody be able to get away with in, um, in the sorts of labor that people are only willing to do if they don't have access to higher paying jobs, right? This is sort of well market forces. If people are willing to do the work, even in a way that's risky, then somebody might think they can get away with it. Um, and what I think you see here is like, well, even if the policy is that that's not allowed, the policy is that this shouldn't be required to include risk. You do sort of need a voice here that is, um, reminding the landowner of their responsibilities, right? We sort of require this voice to say distributed. It sounds like if this voice wasn't here, then maybe the landowner would end up getting away with um, people having to take risk to reach their payout, to reach these fruits. But the, but the Mishnah is falling very strongly on the side of um, the landowner still has to go that extra step. Okay, those are our those are our texts, and um, right in some ways, I, I I don't think there's anything new here conceptually compared to the kinds of things that we might be thinking about all the time in our own society, but I do think it can sometimes help to have a very concrete um, example that's playing out some of these different forces at play, right? And, and, in, and in this case with Pea, what we've really been looking at is, um, right, again, it's not enough. It is important to be willing to let go of some resources you have access to in a world where you know that there are others who do not have access to those resources. That willingness to let go is, is a huge step one. Um, and sometimes you might sort of pat yourself on the back around that and feel like I did it. I did the hard part. The hard part was letting go and realizing that this is not mine. Um, but right, that's, that's not really enough if we haven't thought through the access question. And I think part of what this does is it really brings our attention to like, okay, well, how will this play out? How will it play out for people to access this resource that is now potentially available? Um, and what we see here is, I don't know if it's like peer pressure or the, the sort of desperation that can allow people to be willing to put up with things that really um, nobody should have to put up with in trying to access those resources. Um, and, and I think one way to read this Mishnah that's sort of a little bit of a warning, but is maybe helpful for naming a thought process that we might go through, it might be an emotional process we go through, is it sometimes when when you start to sort of think about well how might this play out and see how leaving these date palms available might actually lead to people losing their lives as they're trying to reach those date palms i think it can be a reason to get stuck can sort of shut down like well then maybe you know if i don't have time to harvest these then maybe I just shouldn't give them in the first place because it's only going to make things worse. I think we can sometimes get stuck on um, on the access questions, and and I hope that that what the Mishnah invites us to do instead is sort of realize that there's there's a lot of important energy and thought um, that goes into how to make this work that in unequal distribution of resources, it's not as simple as, great, 
I can, I'm ready to share. Um, there's really, there's really a lot of deliberate strategy and um, that needs to go into it. And that that strategy needs to be sensitive to um, sort of peer pressure and the way that market forces might work. That might, that might not be in, in everybody's interest. While also, I do think you see here, while also um, paying attention to the importance of like, in general, it might need to be fairly easy to, um, to give as someone Right. So for someone in the position of, of landowner here, someone who sort of has resources, it maybe in general is important for there to at least be some strategies that make it easy to give. It's just, I'm going to leave off these corners of my field and not necessarily doing all of that production work. Um, so I will just share, there's a lot of things that this can intersect with, but in, in some of my recent rereading of, of Patricia Hill Collins, who writes about Black feminist thought, and, and talks about the sort of shift in, um, in 20th century from, from jobs that were more embedded in structures of slavery towards jobs that were technically um, more dignified, but would sometimes be structured so as to have hours of work and conditions of work that were actually extremely um, demeaning and difficult right it's sort of it's an example of how that the initial steps of the process can sometimes right there's not just sort of like this kind of trajectory right if we're not thoughtful about how we do this work um you know taking step one might lead to might lead to a, a, even I don't know if it's helpful to use the comparative. I don't know that it's more problematic, but might might have its own pitfalls. But even as we're trying to create possibilities, there can be new pitfalls. And somehow in this work, like I, I hope what the Mishnah does and the process of learning does when so much of this is really about action, but hopefully what being in the process of learning around this and what it means to have a sort of social justice bait midrash and not only be in the mode of, of doing is, is it can just kind of strengthen our muscle to do this work more thoughtfully and to realize that that's, that's part of what it takes. And there's a, there's a verse, Ashrema skil el dal, right? Fortunate is the one who carefully considers um, a person who is in need, right? Not just kind of thoughtlessly throws out some, some possibility that one might self-perceive as generous, um, but to, to do this work carefully and to, um, to think about the strategies that can, that can really move things along, move us forward, even if it might take a very long time to get to Rabbi Yosei's, there's no such thing as unequal distribution um, that we try to have as an orienting vision. Um, in the meantime, we can really try to think through all the, all the details and practicalities. Um, I, I, I'm totally open if there are any questions or comments as we close out here. Yes, Ava. So I was wondering if there's a discussion in the Mishnah or the Gomorrah about at what's an adequate size corner? Um, and because the question came up in my mind when they were talking about the vines and the date palms, like how do you know if you need to harvest that for the community when you're done, when you've like given away enough? Yeah, okay, great, right? It is interesting. So there is a lot in the Mishnah about like, figuring out the borders and what counts. And it's also kind of strange because at the end of the day, it does seem the mission is working a little bit more with a quantity. Like you don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the corners as long as you're leaving the equivalent of what's in the corners. Um, so I think, I, I don't know if part of your question is, um, you know, if, if you're gonna shift to this other mode of having to, to harvest it, um, Right, when, when do you jump into that process? It is like, can you harvest your whole field? Do you have to make sure to actually harvest that section maybe before you harvest everything else? 
so that you don't just assume that it's yours. Um, I'm not sure that we have more details on this. Interestingly enough, this part of the Mishnah that was tied to the land of Israel, like actually doesn't have a whole lot of further discussion and Talmud on it because it didn't apply in the same way in Babylonia where, um, where most of the Talmud that we know emerged. Um, which, you know, I, I don't know if that's good or bad. It means we can kind of jump into these debates in the Mishnah and play them out ourselves and sort of look for the principles and, and play them out ourselves. Um, but also might leave us with a lot of a lot of unanswered questions that we kind of need to jump in and do the work ourselves. Yes, Aglaya, is that how you pronounce your name? Very good, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, one thing that I'm noticing about this is that, um, that there's a discussion that kind of has, um, within the past few years, just, you know, I don't want to have it anymore with people, though. But this idea that, um, that they're insisting that they earned everything that they have. And it is just sort of like, no, there was no privilege involved, no privilege it all involved. I earned everything that I have. I earned it. I deserve it. That kind of stuff. One of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of the time, I think that those people who are insistent upon this are kind of have this fear that it can, everything that they have can be taken away from them at any time. So that's why they're so like insistent that they earned everything that they have. So one thing that I kind of wonder about those that um, is like, is there discussion in the Mishnah or any way, you know, we could actually use the fact that now you have no idea, but you could lose everything at any time. Some of those people, when we're talking about um, the hanging branches and everything, some of the people who are actually trying to get the fruit from those hanging branches might have had a horrifying injury. And because of that, they cannot harvest anything um, or, you know, I mean, anything like that can happen at any time. So is there anything in the mission about yeah. getting people that you might lose everything? Okay, great. This is a, thank you so much for this question. So I will say this, I, I don't know so much in the Mishnah, but in some later sources, there's actually a split. Um, Dr. Alyssa Gray, who's a, a Talmud scholar, has written some about the differences between the way the Talmud from the land of Israel and the Talmud from Babylonia approach approach poverty. And in sources that are more from the land of Israel, we're talking like fourth, fifth, maybe sixth century, maybe probably fourth, fifth more, are, um, are more of this mindset of like, everybody can go through the cycle uses the image of a water wheel. And that might be because of taxes, that might be because of drought, that might be because of kind of shifts in the sort of ruling powers at the time and a lot of unpredictability but there's more of this mindset of like yeah we're all gonna go through different phases on this and less of an identity around um around sort of status and wealth that's ongoing so there's much more of an idea that we're all people and circumstances can befall us and so because of that kind of be ready, like know where you are on this wheel and if you're giving or receiving in any given moment. While some of the sources that are coming out of Babylonia are much more tied to um, an, an identity that's embedded in class and wealth, um, a fear of people who, uh, who are dealing with poverty. And you get this in different narratives and there, there's more of a kind of divide um and that you know that might speak to what what life was like for who knows maybe sort of more urban rabbis at the time in babylonia but it's 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 some pretty incredible work that she's done um she has she has an essay i, I can't remember if she has a book about this yet but i'm happy to share that oh uh, please yeah Thank you, Rabbi. I was, I'm really pondering on the idea of, um, you know, when is our actions helpful? As um, I'm, I'm really thinking about the the term that's called like, um, and it's it's happening a lot in in the progressive movement of uh, like how do we balance our intentions versus our impact? Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, recently this morning, right before our class, uh, myself and Rabbi Shmuley were out uh, doing um, ho- um, homeless outreach and helping our folks experiencing homelessness. And something I've always done is I've, I've always asked the community uh, here, especially here in Phoenix, like, what is it that you would like rather than me just bringing in stuff? And I think about that because um, we see other orgs giving stuff out. And I see that like some folks give out chewy bars. Well, the majority of the folks out here do not have teeth. So giving them a chewy bar is just going to end up in the trash can. So folks asked us for uh, like hot donuts for coffee, you know, and I think that this is uh, of such an important issue to really think about like, what is our, our, how, how can we balance our, our intent versus our impact? Because sometimes it isn't good to just leave the fruits unintended because somebody might get sick. Sometimes we have to think about maybe should I pick out the best fruits so that folks can grab the best fruits that are appropriate? Should I bring fruits down so that folks have accessibility to it? So I'm really thinking about that. Thank you, Rabbi Aviva. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for these examples and for all that you're doing. Um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, in this example, in the Mishnah, it's like, well, you have to give paya, and it's just a question of how. And I think some people can get stuck when it's not as clear cut as that. And and people can get stuck on like, well, but I could imagine, you know, this outcome, right, that could undermine the impact I was hoping to have. Um, and I obviously, like, the thing that's most important in this mission, which you kind of get, is like the voices of people and what they need right when you see the sort of 99 versus one I just think like paying attention to that one voice in the Mishnah that feels like it could just so easily get get drowned out um right what are the mechanisms to hear that voice to notice that one person who's like actually this system is really not working for me um so you know so in a lot of ways like spending that energy on figuring out how a needs assessment can include all the voices that it needs to feels like a, a major takeaway from this Mishnah. Thank you so much. So it looks like we're gonna go ahead and finish up a little bit earlier. Friends, thank you so much. I wanna make sure that everybody has down our next classes. We have a next class on Tuesday, January 3rd with uh, Sam uh, uh, flying. Thank you everybody who's joined this. Um, we have a night of celebration coming up on December 12th. We appreciate all of you who are either watching this on our Facebook, on Zoom, or on the recording. Friends, again, thank you so much to Rabbi Aviva for such a great class, reminding ourselves where all of us can do a lot better. Thank you so much, everybody who joined. Take care. Thank you, such an honor. Thanks for all you're doing. Hope to learn with you all soon.